forgot to bring water today, so I just ran off with my wife's <laughs> from the sitting down there. Worked out. Uh, okay, well, we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark today. We're going to be in chapter 12, and we're going to take verses 28 through 34. And if you've been with us here recently, this section of Mark is a study over these different confrontations that take place between Jesus and the religious elite there in the temple courts. This is after his triumphal entry. This is after he cleansed the temple. He's in the temple courts and he's being confronted by different um, sectors of Jewish religious people. And, and so it, we get to study these debates and things like that. And, and I, I like a good debate. I'm, I'm going to be honest, you know, I, I've been known to, in my free time, I will just get onto YouTube and watch like a good Christian debate. That is like, that, like <laughs> I find enjoyment in it. Like I will get on the lawnmower and listen to a debate while I, while I mow the lawn. That's the type of nerd that I am. And I, I, I get fascinated by these things. Now, a lot of Christians, they don't like the debates because it's like, oh, man, we don't want to emphasize the divisions and things like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm just the type of person, the divisions are there. And it is what it is. They're there, and I want to know why they are there. And, and if someone who professes to be a Christian believes something that, is, uh, that contradicts what I believe, I at least, I want to know their argument. I want to know what they believe and why they believe that. I think, it's, I think there's a lot of benefits in understanding the opposing argument and being able to dissect it and even articulate it so that you can truly understand the opposition. And so I, I just, I get into that stuff. I, I think it's fascinating. And man, I got like trash up here I'm stepping on. Sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, when I get when, when there's a, a debate that happens, sometimes I'll even have lunch with a group of pastors, and, and we'll, we'll sit around there like a bunch of nerds and talk about the debate. Like, like a group of guys who just watched an MMA fight the night before. Oh, did you see the big fight? You know, but I'll sit around with pastors and, or stuff or, or with Chris, and we'll, and we'll be like, oh, did you see so-and-so debate so-and-so over baptism? It went for four hours. It was awesome. And, and I, I like that stuff. So when I get into this moment uh, in Scripture, I, I'm... I'm kind of fascinated by it. I, I like to dissect why this opposition believes what they believe and, and how they confronted Jesus and what that interaction was. It just, it teaches us so much about the gospel and, and so much about the climate of, of religious conflict in that time. And so, but you know, when I'm watching a debate, one of my favorite moments of any debate is when someone asks an authentic question. Because you know, a lot of times when you watch a debate, a lot of the questions are a setup, right? They're getting them to talk about something, and so if you're, if you're debating someone who's on this side, you're, you're going to set them up with a question that hopefully trips them up and, and, and allows you to look superior in the debate, right? And so, but one of my favorite moments is when you get an authentic question. Like, you get to that moment in which they've kind of exhausted themselves and someone just has a very genuine question. Okay, I, I realize we're on different sides of the aisle here. I, I realize you believe this and I believe that. And, and you believe this over here and I don't. But, so in light of all of that, can you just tell me this? Like you get an authentic question. That's, that's the point of the debate that I love the most. Because it's like, okay, I just want to know why you feel the way you feel or what you believe overall. And I bring that up. 
Because I think that's what's happening in this confrontation today. We've been having all of these different points of conflict. We've had all of these setup questions, and they've been going at each other. But then I, I think this moment that we're studying today is an authentic question. It's, it's genuine. This, this person is genuinely pursuing truth from Jesus, truly wanting to gain an, a better understanding of where he's coming from. Because up to this point, again, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, when they confront Jesus, they're just trying to smack him on the hand, remember? They're just mad because he cleansed the temple. What gives you the authority to do these things? Who gave you this authority? You know, who do you think you are? They weren't looking for truth. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were just trying to trap him in a controversial topic and get him to say something that would make the opposing side not like him. And then we talked about the Sadducees last week, and they, they handcrafted this least likely scenario just to trip Jesus up. But this time it's different. This, uh, today's encounter, we have a scribe who's been watching, who's been listening, who's been considering all of these different interactions, and now he's got, a, he's got a question. And a scribe is no dummy. Remember, a scribe is someone who would have, you know, written copies of Scripture down for people, would have helped interpret the law to God's people. A scribe is someone who would have had the law memorized, or the, the first five books. Remember, that's called the, the Torah. It means law or Pentateuch, five scrolls. They would have interpreted that to God's people and, and educated them on, on that stuff. And so he, this scribe knew what he believed. He was confident in what he believed. But after listening to all of the back and forth, he's been analyzing and considering, and he just, he's been thinking critically about it. He just wants to know, okay, Jesus, what's the big picture for you? In light of all of this that I've been listening to, what's the big picture for you? What, what does our faith mean to you, and, and what is it exactly, and, and what's the most important part of it? That's kind of where he's coming from. And so, again, he, he's been benefiting from watching all of these interactions take place, and now he has questions. And now we get the benefit of watching all of these interactions taking pla take place, including this one where this man asks Jesus what I think could be a very genuine question. And here it is in verse 28. We're just going to take that first verse. It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So did you notice his posture there? He's been paying attention. Hey, you know what, this Jesus guy, you know, that everybody's uh, butting heads with, uh, he, he's answering the questions really well. He, he's, he's articulate, he knows what he believes, he knows why he believes what he believes, and he has really well thought out, respectable answers. So, you know, again, this guy, he may very well have been on an opposing side, but he at least respects the fact that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And again, I, I, I like that. I, that's the, I, like again, I, I like watching the debate. I may disagree with someone in the debate, but I, I like when they have a respectable answer. A thought-out answer. And this guy respects the way that Jesus has been interacting and answering all of these questions. And so I think this guy's asking a, a sincere question. Now, he could have been asking Jesus this question to set him up. You know, some scholars think that when he says, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment of all? That he's trying to get Jesus to emphasize one to the neglect of all the others. And this is how he's trying to trick Jesus. 
And that could be the case, right? It could be the case that this man is trying to set Jesus up in a way that he could twist what he says. And so he could go back to his friends and say, see, Jesus thinks this one law is, is important, but the rest of them aren't important whatsoever. It could, that could have been what he was doing. But I think, I think he was sincere in asking this question because Jews in their day, they already thought of some laws as more important than other laws. And so if you were someone who thought these, these commands are really important, these commands are important, but these commands are really, really important, that's how everyone thought. And so you and I think the same way, right? When we think of being obedient and we think of sin, all sin is not the same. There's a sense in which we say, well, if you, you know, all sin is sin. There's a sense in which that's true, but we don't believe that every sin is of equal weight, right? I mean, killing someone is way worse than, say, cheating on a math test in third grade, right? These are, these are very different things. Yes, before God, if you've, if you've sinned any, at any point in the law, you're guilty of the whole law. Yes, that is true, but when it comes to sin, some sin is bad and some sin is really, really bad. Well, the Jews thought of this too, and the scribes especially, they had this down to a science. Remember, they had that Torah memorized. They had the, the Torah and the commands in that law memorized to the point in which they had identified 613 commands. 613 commands. And of those 613 commands, 365 of them were prohibitions or don'ts. And 248 of them were positive commands, or do's. So when it came to the do's and don'ts, they were like, oh, there's 248 do's, there's 365 don'ts. And of those 613 commands, they thought of them in two categories. There were the heavy commands, those non-negotiables, like if you broke those commands, you were going to be punished, you're in trouble. And then they thought of the other commands as the lighter commands, like you should follow those commands, but, uh, you know, if you broke one of those commands, they're going to say, like, hey, don't break that command. <laughs> they're not going to come down on you quite as hard. And so, like, if you, for example, if you broke one of the Ten Commandments, what are you doing? This is the, one of the Ten Commandments. You don't break one of the Ten Commandments. This was a, a heavy, heavy commandment. But, you know, then there's other commands in Scripture, like, for example, Exodus 23, 9. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So if you broke that command, they'd be like, come on, what's wrong with you? Right? They're not going to execute you for that one. But they're going to be like, dude, that's messed up. What are you doing? Don't boil a young... Actually, I deep dived on that verse, and I don't have time to get into it today, but it's fascinating. Uh, but if you want uh, some homework to do on your own, go, go study the, um, what Christians believe about Exodus 23.9. Um, okay, but you get what I'm saying. Some of these commands are heavy. Some of them are a little lighter. So when it came to the, this scribe, I think he's sincerely asking Jesus of all of those do's and don'ts that we believe, which one is the heaviest? What's the, what's the heaviest one? Which one should we take the most serious? Summarize it for us. Now, here's yet another reason why I think this guy could be sincere. This was a really common question to ask any rabbi who was in the temple around an event such as Passover, which is why they were there. So when a popular rabbi would, would be in town celebrating at a feast like the Passover, a very common question to ask them is, Rabbi, summarize the whole law for us. Tell us the most important commandment. Teach us. 
there's one really famous moment. So if you, if you go looking all through history, you can find several recorded questions like this before and after Jesus. Here's one that's really famous. Uh, there was a rabbi named Hillel, and, and he was approached by a Roman about 20 years before this moment is taking place. And so this, this Roman approached Hillel, who was a famous teacher, a famous rabbi in the Hebrew culture, and he said this, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. And so the thought there is, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot, as in I can't stand on this one foot forever, so hurry up, give me a quick answer. If you could summarize the whole Torah, do that for me right now before I have to put my other foot down. And here's what Hillel said. See if, you saw, see if it sounds familiar to you. Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. That sounds kind of familiar. If you've read ahead, it's going to sound really familiar to you. So what is Jesus going to say? This common question that you would ask a rabbi in the temple, which commandment is most important of all? Let's see how Jesus responds here in verses 29 through 31. Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay. So Jesus has two answers. We're going to break them down. The first one he begins with comes right out of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 6. And it was one of the most memorized verses in the Torah. So every single Jew, upon hearing Jesus answer this question, they would have had this answer memorized. As a matter of fact, it, it was kind of like, you know how, it would have been like their John 3, 16. You know, every Christian, it seems like they can all quote John 3.16 off the top of their head. You're, you're taught to memorize that in Sunday school or kids ministry or, or wherever. And so a lot of Christians have John 3.16 memorized. Well, in their day, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6, that would have been their John 3.16. Everyone knew it. Matter of fact, if you were a pious Jew, someone who took it real serious, you would have said this every morning as soon as you got out of bed, and you would have said it right before you went to sleep that night. It's called the Shema. And so it's called the Shema because Shema means hear. Like, listen, hear. And because that's the first word that's in that set of verses. Hear, O Israel. So Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it's teaching the truth that the Jews are monotheistic as opposed to polytheistic. Now that would have set the Jews apart from everyone. That, that made the Jews so unique. They believed in one God as opposed to several gods. Now, I know sometimes when you're watching a documentary on TV or something like that, a secular scholar will love to pipe in and, and have that gotcha moment where they're like, well, the Jews were polytheistic. You read in the, in the Old Testament and you'll see them worshiping other gods. And, and, and we say, well, yes, when they were being bad, right, when they weren't following their creed of monotheism, when they were denying what authoritative scripture said, yeah, they would worship false gods, and that went really bad for them every single time, and they would have to repent of that and go back to that, go back to that Shema where it says there's, there's just one God. 
And so they were monotheistic. That was a, a, a big part of why they said that every morning and evening. But let me read to you what the Shema says back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to read right where we were in Mark, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Look at that in Mark, and I'm going to read it out of Deuteronomy. And then you see if you can identify the difference between what's written in Mark and what Jesus says and what the Shema says back in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6. There is one detail that is different. So get your magnifying glass out and, and be a detective here while I read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Did you notice what's there? <laughs> right? Uh, Jesus added one. He added one to the Shema, something that everyone would have had memorized. He added your mind. You should also worship with all your mind. He's, he's chosen to emphasize this aspect of our worship, this aspect of our existence. He wants us to think about it, right? And, and when, now when you really start to think about all of these, like the heart, the soul, the mind, your strength, I don't know that they're necessarily four distinct categories because when you really start to think about each of these words and what they mean to our existence, there's some overlap in each one of these. But nonetheless, I don't think they, they have to be four categories, but nonetheless, I think Jesus wanted to emphasize something here that we, that we need to expand on the Shema in the sense that we need, to, we need to think when we worship. We need to make sure that we worship God specifically with our mind in addition to our heart, soul, and our strength. When we worship, when we gather, this is not supposed to be a mindless activity. Jesus actively preached against, against the, that, that thought, right? This is not to be a mindless activity. He didn't want people to, to show up to the temple then and, and mindlessly participate in the rituals and things like that. And I think, honestly, mindless worship is one of the most self-deceiving things that we participate in in our culture. Like, when we're, when we're gathering as Christians, when we're gathering as the church, if we aren't mindful of what we're doing, this can be one of the most self-serving things you'll do all week long. And people say, no, I'm going to church for God. I've got to go worship God. I'm doing this for him. And, but if we mindlessly do that, it'll actually be something that's really just all, all about us. Because that's the natural thing to do. We make everything about us. That's just... It's what we do as fallen creatures. We love ourselves so much that everything that we do has to serve us and be about us and be a benefit to us, including church and all of the activity that's in it. And so if we aren't thoughtful about this time together, naturally you'll make this about you. And we do it all the time. You think about how so much of church today is built around the experience of, you know, intense emotions. We got to we got to create this environment and so everyone feels really emotional when they're here and we're going to get the music just right and because music is emotional and and if people get really locked into those emotions they'll mindlessly participate in what they think is worship but they really don't know what they're singing about or talking about it just feels good they just like the way that they feel when they sing this way and so that'll keep them coming back and a lot of people have built some empire ministries with that philosophy I mean, just think about it. 
Think about some of the songs we've sang in our culture uh, over and over and over, and we don't even know what they mean, like, you know, like kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. We wore that song out, right? Someone's crying, Lord, kumbaya. Someone's singing, Lord, kumbaya. Someone's praying, Lord. Kumbaya, whatever kumbaya is, <laughs> right? I would sing that song in vacation Bible school growing up. I'm like, are we just notifying God that someone's praying and singing and crying and then saying some word that's probably like uh, some African language or something? I don't know, <laughs> like, what is kumbaya? But I was one of those kids who would never in a million years ask a question, right? And uh, I would just rather not know than, <laughs> than ask a question. Uh, but I remember being so mesmerized by that song, like, what is kumbaya? I love the way I feel when I'm singing it. It's so soothing, and it's really catchy. I, I mean, I'll sing it with you every time. But I have no idea what kumbaya is. But again, it appeals to our emotions. It's a catchy tune. And we're singing kumbaya. It's, it, isn't it funny how that has even become like this cynical phrase <laughs> like we oh you want me to come the journey with you what are you going to sit around and sing kumbaya together you know people use it as like a cynical way in, in a cynical way to to kind of trash a church gathering right you, you guys are just going to get all emotional hold hands and cry and stuff like that kumbaya yeah okay kumbaya it means come by lord come here lord I, and i had to look it up for this sermon if it makes you feel any better <laughs> Oh, man. But I, I, I was just thinking, like, I have no idea what kumbaya is. It's a Hebrew word, like three Hebrew words put together, kumbaya, Lord. All right. But you know what I mean? The, the, if we're just thoughtlessly worshiping, it will actually point us away from God instead of to God. You know, it'll just be about us. It kind of it goes right into what Jesus answers next, Right? His second answer assumes self-love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody needs to be told to love themselves, right? And, and, and that's, what's, that's, that's the irony of the day and age that we live. We promote self-love like crazy in our culture. Man, you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to love yourself. You should love yourself more. Love yourself. Love yourself. Love your, and, I, and we talk about loving ourselves in our, in our society as if that's one of our biggest problems, and I, when I think about it, I'm like, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I think self-love, self the presence of self-love is, is one of our biggest problems, not the absence of it. Um, I mean, I see what they're going for in a, in a sense, but it, it's like even self-loathing today is rooted just in pure narcissism. Look at me, look at me. I mean, we, we, are, we are just wired to love ourselves. We naturally do this. And so when we hear a command to love our neighbor, that's armed with the truth, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whoa, that's a big command then. Sounds a lot like what Hillel said about 20 years before Jesus, right? Hillel just said it in the negative. But both of them are just copying the Old Testament. It comes out of Leviticus 19, so there's a good homework text. If you want to go back and, and look at Leviticus 19, verse 18. And of course, Jesus, just like he took the Shema and he expanded it, he intensified it by adding your mind, love God also with all your mind, he also expands on the thought of loving your neighbor because he changed the definition of your neighbor. Now, in the Old Testament, when you had the thought of loving your neighbor, what that meant is loving fellow Jews. So it was a command to God's people to love 
God's people, love other Jews. But when Jesus started teaching about loving your neighbor, he expanded on that. It's not just Jews, it's everyone. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is your neighbor? Remember Jesus taught the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, another place to go uh, read later on this afternoon as a homework text. Luke chapter 10, you can read about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is explaining to the people he was teaching who our neighbor is. And a Samaritan, that's, that's your neighbor. Now, to us, again, it's lost on us because we didn't grow up in that culture. But to say that a Samaritan is your neighbor, for a Jew to hear that, that would have been a huge deal. That was considered a different ethnicity. They were considered like half-breeds. It was a very racist uh, feeling towards them. They would have been considered of different religion. They're wrong, 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 and they're unclean. You don't interact with Samaritans. If you were traveling through uh, Israel, rather than go straight through Samaria to, from, from uh, up north to get down to the temple, rather than just go through Samaria, they're going to go all the way around the Jordan River and, and pass in pagan land so they don't even have to interact with any Samaritan. That's how much they avoided them. And then Jesus starts saying, hey, your neighbor, who's your neighbor? Well, your, your neighbor is everyone. Like a, a Samaritan is your neighbor. And so when Jesus says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he's including people like Samaritans. It was shocking to them. Of course, not to mention Jesus said love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Love your enemies like you love yourself. And so some ministries just simplify this teaching. This is a very popular point of teaching in, in the Gospels, and they'll say, well, it just comes down to this, love God and love others. And that's good. That is a great way to simplify it. I mean, the commandments, when you study the Ten Commandments, those first four commandments are, are about our vertical relationship with God. It's about loving God. And the, the last six commandments about our horizontal relationships are about loving others. And so this is kind of how these commands are designed anyway. A good way to think about it. So let's see what the scribe thinks of Jesus' answer here. Let's see how he responds in verse 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the, all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So you see this guy affirm all of the things that Jesus just said in his answer. Wow, that, you've had some respectable answers up to this point, and this answer is respectable too. You've, you've affirmed the belief that there is just one God. We're monotheistic. Yeah, good job. That's right. You, you have, you've included worshiping with our minds. This shouldn't be mindless worship. You see how the scribe caught that addition, and he even compliments it. Uh, yeah, this is... This is about understanding. That's true. And you understand that, that, you know, you can do all these rituals and things, but if you're not loving your neighbor, right, it doesn't matter. Who cares about all these whole burnt offerings and sacrifices? If you're not loving God and your neighbor, what are you doing? It's meaningless. I mean, what good are they? If you show up to, to offer sacrifices to God, but you don't love him, and you show up to offer whole burnt offerings, but you're not loving your neighbor, what are you even doing it? it it avoids all of what you're doing of any meaning. And of course, it's the same for you and I today, right? We can participate in this all day long. And we can sing the right words, and we can, we can, we can you know, dress the right way, and associate with the right circles, and say we like the same authors, and all that stuff. But if you're not actually 
pursuing a love of God, if you're not actually taking it serious when he says, love your neighbor, and that means everyone as yourself, what are you even doing? What does it mean to you? So it's, it's striking then how Jesus responds to this man. Listen in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You're not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Isn't that a peculiar answer? They, they've not been talking about the kingdom of God. They're not talking about eternity. But Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're not in, but you're not far. You're close, but no cigar. What gives? I thought he said Jesus gave all the rain answers, and, and Jesus just said he answered wisely. Why is he not in the kingdom of God? Isn't this what God's looking for? Someone who knows the right answers? Someone who understands what's supposed to be taking place, and and, and someone who, who participates in all the good rich, rituals and, and genuinely cares for others? What gives? How come he's close but not in the kingdom of God? Well, it's the same reason you and I can get really close but not be in the kingdom of God. Apart from Jesus, we're not in the kingdom of God. I mean, think about all these commands and think about how you're doing with them. You might be able to say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength, but talk is cheap, right? How you doing it? Are you, are you doing well? It's the word all that gets me. Like, you mean like all? Am I loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't pulled that off for 10 minutes. I can't even do it during an entire sermon. I, I, I'm, I'm so sinful, I stray away, I, I get distracted, and, and I <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, heart, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself? Have you really thought about that? How are you doing with that? How are you doing with loving your enemies as much as you love yourself? I'm pretty sure it's hard, and most of us in here are failing at loving even our spouse as much as we love ourselves let alone our enemies. I mean, we, we deceive ourselves with so much of the good stuff and convince ourselves that we're in the kingdom of God based on our performance because, again, we always compare ourselves to the worst people possible. But here's what I worry about the good stuff. I think it's the good stuff that keeps people from God even more so than the bad stuff a lot of times. We get caught in a routine of religious activity we give so much money. We go on the mission trip. We, we take a Saturday to serve somewhere or to join a bunch of other Christians and do something that's good. We, we have the right circle of friends and we have the right places to go and, and, we, and we stay away from that super bad stuff. And I, and I think that we get so caught up in a, in a rhythm of good that we start to convince ourselves, I'm good enough. I do all right. But, but let me tell you, this scribe had all the right answers, didn't he? Well, if that's all we had to do is be like the scribe, we wouldn't need the cross. We don't need the gospel if we got everything that the scribe's got going on. But that scribe wasn't in the kingdom of God. He's, he's, he's not far from it. He's close, but he's not in. 
When we study the gospel of Jesus, we don't gather our, our, ourselves together to convince ourselves that we're good. That's not what this is. That's how the outside world stereotypes this. That's how the outside world stereotypes the message of the Bible. Oh, you guys think you're great. You think you're so good. Well, when you're studying the actual gospel, it doesn't spend a lot of time telling you how good you are. It exposes how bad you are. When you read scripture, it exposes that you have fallen short of the glory of God. You need redeemed. It doesn't tell you that you're good. And so, I, I, you know, when I think about this text, like, I don't want to just, again, I don't want to just be close. I want to be in. And here's what we know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're told that Jesus did love God the Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when I put faith in him, I get that righteousness for me when I stand before God one day. We know that Jesus did love his neighbor like he did himself. He died for his enemies. Enemies like you and I, he died for us on the cross that we could be accepted by him and welcomed into his kingdom. And so that's the gospel message and that's what we're here to study today. And we don't want to do this mindlessly. We don't want to take communion thoughtlessly. We want to come back to that same truth each and every Sunday to remember I have been redeemed because of him, not because of me. And that's how we draw close and go into and be a part of the kingdom of God right now. So let's do that with our remaining time that we have together. Let's sing about the gospel, and we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for uh, Mark chapter 12. Just so many incredible moments where we get to examine these confrontations, these debates and disagreements, and even moments like this where a man just he just wants to... Wants to a clear answer, Lord, of, of what you believed and you gave such a beautiful answer. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, that it is your merit that allows us to be in your kingdom. We thank you that it's your sacrifice that allows us to be acceptable to you. Because, Lord, if it was left to us to muster up the strength to try to worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and, and, and try to love our neighbor as ourselves, Lord, we, we would be doomed. We would have no chance. We would be beyond redemption. But Lord, you have redeemed us. Thank you for your gospel that saves us. We thank you for providing that salvation and help us to rest in that today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.